Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, it's a big question. Uh, what, what does it mean to serve God with all of your heart? And I want to relate this to, uh, as, as we discuss it, I want to relate this to um, a conversation that uh, Paro and, and, and Moshe are having back and forth over the course of these ten plagues. And it, it culminates in a particular argument where Paro gets so angry at Moshe that he kicks him out of the palace and says, I'm never going to see your face again. Right? So, so the question is, you've got ten plagues happening. And this is before the tenth plague. You've got all of the greatest empire of, of, of ancient civilization being destroyed in front of Paro's eyes. And here's the agent of its destruction is, is Moshe Rabbeinu, Moses. And they finally get into an argument where Paro says, get out, get out, and I'm never going to see you again. So the question is, what was that argument over? That's what we want to know. It would be interesting to know because everything is falling apart. Literally an empire is falling apart. What is that argument over? And we're going to find, I'm not going to tell you this second, I'm going, to, I'm going to get to it later, but it's going to be a very, very surprising answer what it's over, with a lot of spiritual consequences. Because what is being argued about, and we're talking about analyzing the verses right now on a very deep level, what the argument is about is really about serving God with all of your heart. And, and we're going to get to it. And so let me just start with something, which is, um, which is just, I don't know how many of you are familiar with what orange zest is. Z-E-S-T, right? You have orange zest, you have lemon zest, right? Certain recipes call for this. And, and what it is, is, is that you take the outside of the orange, the orange peel, and you kind of shave it off, you scrape it off, and then you use the actual orange peel as an ingredient in the recipe. Certain recipes call for this. Now, the reason why we're talking about orange zest right now is because this is a little bit surprising, because normally speaking, especially when we're looking at the... Um, all of the ingredients of the world, so to speak, all of God's creations from a spiritual level. Normally speaking, when we talk about the, the outer peel, especially of a fruit, we're usually talking about something that gets thrown away. In fact, there's a, a special spiritual term for the, the, the outer part of uh, a fruit. It's called klipot, the, the klipa, which is normally speaking a spiritual obstacle that you want to get rid of. Okay, we talk about breaking through klipot, right? Which is like, you know, barriers. Like you have to just really like supercharge your soul and then you can break through the klipot. So in, in, in this world, when, if we want to think of what, 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 how that manifests in this world, normally we would talk about something like the, the, um, the peels around a fruit. Like you get rid of the outer shell and then you eat the inner part. That, that, that's what it is. So... So with this in mind, what I'm trying to tell you is that many recipes actually call for the outer shell. <laughs> That's the orange zest. In other words, God didn't make anything for nothing. God made everything 
for something. Even these outer husks are for something. Okay, so now let's go a little bit deeper, just so we're speaking the same language. What we're talking about is the fact that we have two main faculties, spiritually speaking. We have our good side and we have our negative side. Or if you want to get a little technical, our Yetzirahs and our Yetzirahs, right? Our, our negative inclination and our positive inclination. And the truth is, is that we're supposed to use both of them to serve God. And you see this in a, in a classic way in the Torah, in a prayer that we say all of the time, but a lot of people aren't focused on the actual translation of what it is that we're saying when we're using these words. We say that in the Via Hafta, in, in Shema, we say Via Hafta, and you should love God. Um, and if you ask most people, like, what does that mean, they'll tell you, oh, that's obvious. It means with all of your heart. You know, pretty straightforward. Except that's not what it means. And that's not what it even says. What it says is, you have to love God with all of your hearts. Bechol is actually, surprisingly, plural. With all of your hearts. Now, that's surprising since we have one heart. Or do we? <laughs> well, we do. But the rabbis explain that the reason why it's plural is because Hashem is instructing us that we have to love God with our positive inclination and with our negative inclination as well. Now, how do you do that? How do you love God with your Yetzirah? How do you do that exactly? So, what we have to understand is, is that all of us are works in progress. You know, Judaism believes in reincarnation. And what that means is that everyone who comes into this world comes into this world with something to fix. That means all of us are broken in some way. And we all have something to fix from the outset. You know, Rabbi Kiva thought Baruch Hochba was the Mashiach. And there was a huge, disastrous war that the Jewish people fought and lost. Like, huge numbers of people, I don't even know how many people, hundreds of thousands or millions of people died in this war, in the sacking of Betar. It was, and, and then that was the final exile of the Jewish people for 2,000 years till this day. You know, I mean, a lot of, we, we tend to think of the fall of the destruction of the second base Hamigdash as like the end of our residency in Israel. That wasn't it. It was the losing of this war of Bar Kokhba. That was it, which came after the destruction of the second base Hamigdash. And then that was it for a good 2,000 years of us in the land of Israel. The Gemara says that Bar Kokhba prayed. He felt as though the, the Jewish army was, was strong enough to, to, to beat the Romans. And so the Gemara says that his, his flaw, his, 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 his downfall, was that he, he prayed not that we should win, but that you shouldn't make them stronger than us. In other words, you don't have to help us just don't help them. As long as you don't help them, we'll win. 
So, in other words, there was a slight, there was a slight arrogance there, if you will, or a slight sense of independence from God, that that we can do it as long as you don't help them against us, we'll be able to do it. A fascinating, a fascinating thing. In other words, however we're to understand it, on some level, he felt as though it was in his hands and he could do it. Without God. We can't lift a finger without God. We can't, we can't, we can't blink an eye without God. You see, a lot of people think that it's sort of like, I have it right, I just can't blow it. <laughs> right? Like, we're born in a state of purity, let's just not blow it. But I think that the if we want to think of our lives and we want to think of the, the world in a more accurate way, and not only is it a truer, more accurate way, but it's also a much more healthy um, uh, way in, in terms of just in terms of us being the greatest successes and the most productive we can be in our in, in, in this world, is what I like to call the the IKEA model. <laughs> the IKEA model is that we're not this built piece of furniture, but that we come in a box. And we have to assemble ourselves over the course of our lifetime. This is, this is what our life in this world is. We're works in progress. Right? And a lot of times, what happens, you know, I heard Rabbi Beryl Wine say this years ago, and it's always sort of like haunted me. He said, and I, I don't remember the exact numbers that he used, but this is the general idea that he said. That it's easier to go from zero to like 80 than it is to go from 80 to 100. <laughs> you know, like a lot of times, like, there's just, like you get to a place in life, especially someone who say like a Balchuva or something like that, where, where you see all this amazing progress that you make in front of your eyes over a fairly short period of time. It's incredible. But if you want to get from 80 to 100, <laughs> that's, a whole, that's a whole nother ballgame. So in the IKEA model, that's, let, let me put it in, in visual terms, you've built the bookcase. By the way, one time I decided I, that I, I got something from IKEA, right? And I said, I don't have, it's a simple bookcase. It was like a rectangle you stand it up, it's got a few shelves, that was it. That was as complicated as it was. I'm like, I looked at the instructions, I'm like, I'm not making myself crazy. I can figure this out. I put it up, and in a matter of minutes, it folded onto itself, imploded, and broke in front of my eyes. I mean, the whole thing fell apart. You need the instructions, even if it seems obvious you need the instructions. But anyway, let's say... In this example, you actually use the instructions. And now you've got this rectangle in front of you with the shelves, and everything is good. It's good. You follow the instructions, everything's good. 
except there are four screws left over. <laughs> like everyone's had that experience where you've got these extra parts left over and you go, I don't need them because I already did it and it's working, right? That's a person who reaches 80%. <laughs> so you want to get to 100%, you got some parts left over, dude. <laughs> these are doing something even if you don't see the need for them right now. And you go, well, now I'm going to have to dig back into the whole plans. I'm going to have to figure out the entire thing all over again. I got this far, and it works. You want me to dig back in, go through the entire thing all over again to figure out where these things belong? I don't even know if I need these things. But that's, that, that's what it is. That's what it is. See, again, this is why we're so mad at Asif. Because Asif, remember, Asif was born, he was a newborn baby, and he was born covered in hair, like, a, like an adult man. And that's why they, they called him Asif, because it comes from the word asui, which means made. Because the idea was that he was born already finished. He was already an adult male as a baby. Spiritually speaking, the, the, the problematic part of that is thinking that you're a finished product. See, if you think you're a finished product, then you're not trying to improve to your last breath. Our model, Judaism, the whole model of Judaism is that we're never stopping, we're never growing to our last breath. And this is one of the secrets to life, because if you have that mentality, you go, then you're always striving, then you're never bored, then life never becomes meaningless, then you're never done. This is the greatest blessing in the entire world, not to be done. So, so let's get this back to, to this idea of serving God with your whole self. So the point is, the point is, we want to know, we want to know, what does it mean serving God with all of your hearts? What does it mean with serving God with your Yetzirah? What does that mean? Especially in light of this, all these things we're talking about. Is understanding that there are sides to ourselves and to our personalities, darker sides, sides that we aren't happy with, that we'd like to forget about or tuck away in a drawer or something like that. But that's part of us. These are part of the tools. These are the extra screws. These are the extra things. We have to use the entirety of ourselves in order to serve God. So that means learning how to take those desires, which often are tripping us up, and figuring out how to channel those things in a positive way. Now remember... If you want a, a more complete understanding of what we're talking about, I recommend listening to last week's talk. I called it Overwhelming Desires. And we talked about this notion of, of taiva. Taiva um, means that basically you're, you're just longing for something with your whole self. You're throwing your entirety of yourself into something without even thinking about the consequences of what is going to come from doing that. And... And the idea is like this. Like that orange that we talked about initially, 
God creates the entirety of ourselves, and he wants us to use all of ourselves, right? The orange zest as well, the peel as well, not just to throw it away. So David Amelech says in the Tehillim, in the Psalms, essentially, I have tiver for you, God, right? Meaning that I'm, I'm taking all of those passions and I'm, I'm throwing them your way, God. Right, the, 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 the classic example they say if someone has a, is, has a, uh, a thirst for blood, some people have this like desire that that person should become a moil, meaning he should learn to be able to perform uh, kosher circumcisions so that he can take that bloodlust essentially and then channel it, sublimate it in, in, in a holy way. And, and this, goes with, um, this goes with all of our desires. Now, I'll tell you something. There's a, I, I, saw this, uh, I saw this in a book of collected Hasidic thoughts. And it was referred to, Rabbi Ari Kaplan referred to it, it as fallen love. What, what, what is fallen love? Excuse me. So the example would be, imagine, you know, you're walking down the street, whatever it is, and you see a Ferrari some sports car or something like this that you're like, wow, that, that's such a cool car. I would, I would love that car. Or you're walking by a shop window like Tiffany's and you see like this diamond necklace or something like this. Or you see a house and you're like, wow, you know, all of these things. So on a deep level, what God is doing, like imagine um, you're going fishing, Right. Now, how does that work? You, you lower a hook down into the water, and it goes all the way down into the water, and then a fish bites the hook, like maybe there's a worm on the hook or something like that. The fish bites the hook, and then you pull the fish up from the bottom all the way up to the top. Okay? So this idea of fall in love is that God will put very, you know, attractive, desirable things in front of our eyes when we're not thinking about God. And then we look at this thing that we love and that's God reminding us, no, no, love me. (laughs) In other words, we get hooked on that visual, right? On that diamond ring, we get hooked on it and then we remember, oh, oh, no, 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 that love that I have for this, let me channel that love for God. So, so to speak, that, that ring is a hook that's pulling us up, back our recognition, back toward God. So, so again, the idea here is taking all of the things that drive us, all of our desires, all of our motivation, and using them even if they appear to us as negative, right? That all of it is created by God in order to be used by us for God. That's, that's, that's the idea. Okay. So now with all of this in mind, I want to get back to what I was talking about initially. This argument between Moshe Rabbeinu and Para. Right? We said it, we set it up, we said, here, the entire empire, the greatest empire in ancient civilization is falling apart in front of Paro's eyes. And it comes to the point where Paro says to Moshe Rabbeinu, get out! Right, which he doesn't say the whole time. What was the last straw for Paro? 
Now listen to this. In light of everything we've been discussing up until now. Over the course of the plagues, Moshe says, we're going, you know, we're going to leave. And Paro says, you know, you can't leave. And then later on he starts to say, okay, you can leave, but, but don't take your children with you. And then he eventually says, okay, you can leave and your children can leave, but you have to leave your cattle and your flocks behind. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, no, 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 we're taking our cattle and our flocks. And then Paro goes, get out! (laughs) So can you imagine the entire Egyptian empire is falling apart, but what is the last straw for Paro is you can't leave with your animals. Okay, now let's just understand on a simple level, then we'll talk about it on a deeper level. On a simple level, Paro saw it as collateral. If you're taking everything, including your animals, that's like your property, you're never coming back. So I can guarantee that you're going to come back by making sure that your animals stay here. Okay, that, remember, everything, you can always go deeper and deeper in your analysis of the, of the psukim, of the verses, but it always has to be consistent on some level with the simple pshat. So, so you know, the, the, the problem is, a lot of times people are learning Kabbalah before they're learning pshat, right? You can learn Kabbalah, but you have to also understand what the basic do's and don'ts and structure is. Once you understand that, then you can go deeper. Okay. So you have to be able to do both. So that's why I want to give you the simple shot. The simple definition is he doesn't want them to leave with their property. But that's going to get deep in a second also. But now let's go even deeper than that. You see, the Yetzirah also has another name. It's called the Nefesh Behema. The Nefesh Behema means your animalistic nature also known as your Yetzirah. See, Paro is saying, you know what? You want to leave and you want to serve God with your good side? Go ahead. Go and serve God with your good side. But you're telling me that you want to go and you want to serve God with your good side and with your animals? And with your Nefesh Behema? And with your Yetzirah? You're telling me you want to go and you want to serve God with the totality of your being? No, that I'm not going to allow. And I heard Reb Shlomo say, with my own ears, I heard him say, you know what, Amalek, because all these ideas, Amalek, of course, is the nation that's trying to destroy us, the arch enemy of the, the nation of Israel. Amalek, but Amalek is also a spiritual force at the same time. So all these ideas, Paro, Yetzahara, Amalek, all these things, Nefesh Behema, all these things, you can stack them up. They all align, okay? They're all in the same continuum. By the way, the Gomorrah says, the Yetzahara, the Malach Amavis, which is the angel of not so much, right? And the, and the, and the Satan is all the same force. So you, you have to understand this is all... One spectrum, all these ideas, and they all have their appropriate place and, and, and paradigm, right? But they're all along the same spectrum. But Amalek, Amalek comes to a person and says, you want to serve God? 
go ahead, serve him. Just don't do it with all of your heart. Just don't do it with all of your heart. You know, one of the more mysterious episodes in the in the Torah is Lot's wife. Right? Without getting into the whole story, Saddam, right? Sodom and Gomorrah is being destroyed by like hellfire. It's being like wiped out. The whole city is being like blotted off the face of the earth. And God says like, go, run, leave, and don't look back. Don't look back. And Lot's wife is, is running like, you know, this fiery destruction happening. They're, they're, they're leaving. And she looks back and she turns into a pillar of salt. So a lot of deep commentary on that, what was going on there. But, but I just want to say on one level, part of her was still attached to Saddam. That's why she's looking back means when she's leaving, she's not leaving with the entirety of herself. Part of her is still tied. Paro is saying, you want to leave? You can leave, but don't leave with your animals. Don't leave with your animals. You know why? So that part of you will still be tied here. Right? And so now we can see how even the shot is working on a very deep level too. Because what we said was the simple level was that he didn't want them to take their animals because they're not going to come back. Because that was collateral, tying them there. But now you see on a very deep spiritual level, what he was saying works perfectly consistently as well. That if you're still tied there, if you don't take your animal nature out, you're still tied to whatever Egypt is all about. So how do you do that? How do you do that? How do you do it? How do you, how do you serve God with fullness? How do you do it? So I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you a big secret, okay? This is the way you do it. You can't just be running away from something. You have to be running towards something. If you're just running away from your Yetzirahs and all of your negativity and all the things that are pulling you down, if you're just running away from it, you're going to be like Lot's wife. You're going to look back. You're going to look back because you're still tied to it because you're just running away from it. But if you're running towards something, it's not about leaving something. It's about getting someplace. If you're running toward God, if you're running toward God, then you can do it. And now I'm going to throw in another crucial aspect. It's got to be besimcha. It's got to be besimcha with joy. You know, it says, I think it's Yeshaya. He says, you, you leave with joy. And the Kutzka Rebbe says, through joy you can leave all things. If it's with joy, then you're not missing it because you're already happy. See, what pulls you back to your old self, to your old ways, is because there's part of you that's telling you, 
That's making me happier than anything I'm running toward. The thing I'm running away from really holds more happiness for me than what it is that I'm running toward. And that's why it's going to pull you back again and again and again and again. But if you understand what you're running toward contains within it the completion of your happiness, then what do you need it for? You know, they say this by the women. They say this by the women, that they they, they notice something, um, I don't know who says it, but um, you see, you know, the spies that spied out the land and brought back the bad report that we had to do the whole extra 40 years in Egypt? How many of those spies were women? Zero. What about by the worshiping of the golden calf? Basically, that was Mashiach. Mashiach was about to come, right? They say the 17th of Tammuz. Aaron, Aaron Akohin says, wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a holiday. And so the, the famous explanation of that was that he was trying to do a delay tactic, sending everybody away. Wait for Moshe. Moshe's going to come down, and then you'll see he's not dead. He's coming down. Everything's going to be normal. Don't do this crazy thing, worshiping the golden calf. Wait till tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a holiday. But I saw from Rabbi Wolfson something much deeper. No, no, no. The 17th of Tammuz, which was that date, really was a holiday, and it's going to be a big holiday in the future. That was going to be the holiday of Moshe Rabbeinu coming down with the Luchos. In other words, the giving of the Luchos, that's one category and everything like this. But the actual Moshe's on the ground with the tablets themselves, that was going to be the completion of the holiday. That was going to be a holiday. The women were able to wait. The men were not able to wait. The women waited. So how is it possible that the women were not involved with the sin of the spies, and they also weren't involved with the the sin of the golden calf. What's their secret? So, So I saw an explanation that the women were the ones, you know, they, this is something, it's, a, it's such a beautiful thing to this day, which is after the sea split, when it talks about the, 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 the song of joy that the women sang, it says that they were playing, it's timbrels. translated as timbrels, right? But, you know, they, you know like, like tambourines, basically. So, so the rabbis ask, where do they, they're, they're like, they're in the middle of the desert. Where do they get the tambourines from, right? And they said, well, they left Egypt with the tambourines because they knew a great salvation is about to happen. So they came with the tambourines. And I know that, like, there are certain parties, women's gatherings, where they make tambourines and they, they, they put sequins on them and they, they customize them with you know, paint, magic markers, things like this. It's a beautiful thing, right? So in other words, this idea, and then it says that they danced. And you don't see anywhere that men danced. <laughs> There's no, like, David and Melech is dancing, but that's already like, you have to get into Tanakh to find that. <laughs> But in the Chumash, just you see the women dancing. In other words, the women have this secret, which is that the chief joy is God. Of course, men can have this also. 
but 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 they're demonstrating how to do it. Now, let's go further. And I saw this from the Sassover Rebbe. A very, very great explanation. Again, another very challenging verse in the Torah where it's talking about, it's in the uh, section called Tochacha, which is like the rebuke, which is like, you know, like basically the scariest part of the Torah. It's in two different places where God talks about all the essentially disastrous things that are going to happen if we don't, if we don't follow uh, the Torah itself. And then at the end of this Tochacha, the second time it appears in the Torah, it says, and why are all these things going to happen? Because when times were good, you didn't serve God with happiness. And by the way, this is one of the, <coughs> blessed, this is one of the main sources where, where Rabbi Nachman of Breslov, you know, foundates, if that's a, a, a word, uh, his, his derech of, of serving God with joy. One of the places. So, so the simple reading of this, the simple reading of this is, is very scary and depressing, which is like, well, I guess things have been good for me at different times of my life, and who knows if I've been grateful enough or happy enough, and maybe if I haven't, I'm going to get zapped, <laughs> you know? So it can lead to that type of thinking. But thank God for the Sassover Rebbe, he's clarifying it for us. He says, no, no, no. You know what it means? It means that if a person is finding happiness outside of God, then they're going to run to those things. And once they start running to those things, they're going to start making their life very, very complicated. And then they're going to make themselves vulnerable to all sorts of judgments. So, so what, what, what the verse is telling us is the importance of finding our main happiness in God. Right? Now, in order to do that, and then we're not looking for God in all the wrong places, right? To paraphrase the country western song. (laughs) But in order to do that, a person really has to create this relationship. And that's, that's, that's up to all of us to do individually, right? See, there's something, some basic tenant of human nature. And this is true for every single person. If you tell someone to do something they don't want to do, it creates negativity. Go, go, go to school. I don't want to go to school. Okay, now I already I hate school. Because you told me to go to school and I don't want to go to school, now I hate school. It's just, it's like a lockstep. It's cause and effect. So a person has to, if they're going to be serious, they can't, they can't just allow themselves to be ping-ponged and ricocheted off different mitzvahs and different commandments that they have to do. Because you're never going to create the proper love and the proper relationship where you're running toward God if you're just reacting to different commands in your life. 
It's never going to happen. So you have to figure out, what do I like to learn? Maybe a person just, you know, maybe everyone's learning Gemara, and you feel like a fool because I'm not learning Gemara. I just like to learn Chumash. So you're supposed to just learn whatever you like to learn. That's what the rabbis say. You should learn what you like to learn. You know, you shouldn't be an ignoramus. There's no heter to be an ignoramus. But at the same time, there's no joy or mitzvah in not enjoying your heavenly service. What? So, so a person has to put thought into this. Like, can you imagine you're, you're, you're going, you have a relationship with like a man or a woman, whatever it is, and you're, you're, you're going out and they keep on taking you to the, you know, the Metropolitan Museum of Transit, <laughs> you know, where you're like, I mean, how many times can I look at a subway from 1911? I don't want to go there again. <laughs> no, 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 that's where... Honey, guess what? <laughs> it's not it's not five PM yet. You know what that means? The Museum of Transit's still open. Let's go. What do you say? We haven't even left yet. You wanna go again? <laughs> so if that's your davening experience. <laughs> It's like going to the Museum of Transit, right? If that's, if that's what it means for you to go to shul, something's off. Something's off. Okay. So you say, let's go deeper now. Let's go deeper. You say, I'm in exile. This world is one big exile. How can I... I can't even see God in this world um, because this world is so in exile. Remember, I, I, I heard from Rabbi Chaim Sitron, very big Talmud Chacham. He said, you know, in Hasidus, you see this, this realm that we're in referred to as the lowest of all the worlds, spiritually speaking. So he said, if there's an infinite number of alumos, of spiritual worlds, right? And we're talking about, you know, not planets right now. We're just talking about, um, you know, levels of, of revealed spirituality, levels of revealed light. And this is the lowest one. How do we know this is the lowest one? Maybe there are ones that are lower than this. That was his question. And he, and he, said, he said back, he said that he asked his teacher, and his teacher explained to him, this is the most concealed God can be where if you look for him, you can still find him. That's why this is called the lowest world. The most, this is the most concealed God can be where if you look for him, you can still find him. If you were any more concealed, you wouldn't be able to find him at all. It's an amazing thing. So you say, I'm in exile. This world is in exile. You're talking about me sort of like 
skipping through fields of flowers all the time. I'm like in Detroit, downtown, 3 a.m. <laughs> I'm hearing shots being fired. All I can see is like abandoned skyscrapers with broken windows. Like, what are you telling me? How can I turn this into a paradise? So I would, I would say the following back to you, based on, again, based on this week's Parsha. It's Parsha's bow. Parsha's bow is where we leave Egypt. If you, if you ask most people who are studying the Chumash, when do we leave Egypt? I think you can make an excellent case that it's really Parsha's Beshalach. Because Parsha's Beshalach, which is the next week's Parsha, which has the splitting of the Red Sea and the manna falling from heaven and all sorts of amazing miracles and amazing Parsha, um, begins with, and we left Egypt. Right? So, but... Parsha's bow contains this Pasuk. Listen to this Pasuk. It's so definitive. That's why I love it so much. And I'm going to tell you something cool about it in a moment. It's so definitive. This is in, in, in Sefer Shmos, the book of Exodus, chapter 12, verse 51. It happened on that very day. Hashem took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their legions. Done. That's it. That's the most definitive statement you're going to get. It happened on that very day, Hashem took the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt in their legions. Done. That's in Parsha's book. Now let me tell you something cool about that. I saw from Rabbi Wolfson in the name of the Zohar that leaving Egypt in the Chumash, now I'm talking about the five books, in the Chumash is mentioned 50 times, five up. So... When I saw that Pasuk a few years ago, I was like, here it is. This, is. this is the verse. I mean, of all the mentions of leaving Egypt, nothing can compare to this verse. This is the verse. So I thought there must be something, probably many special things about this verse. But let me see if I can find something special. So I counted the letters in the verse. Now, what did I just say? It says in the Zohar, 50 times leaving Egypt is mentioned in the five books. I counted the letters in that verse, 50 letters. Isn't that interesting? And again, what are we always talking about? Worlds within worlds, within worlds, within worlds, within worlds. Right? The Torah is endless. It's endlessly deep. Okay. So, so now I have another question off of this verse, which is, If you read a little bit more, it says that our first Pesach Seder was in Egypt. Now let's think about that for a moment. This is talking about how we left Egypt. And what is the Pesach Seder? So everybody knows that's the celebration of leaving Egypt. So isn't it interesting (laughs) that God made the first celebration of leaving Egypt to be celebrated while we were still in Egypt? God could have very easily taken us out a day before. I mean, if you say, no, 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 for cosmic reasons, it had to be on the 15th of Nisan, and okay, I'm with you. So take us out a day earlier. (laughs) So we'll have the Pesach Seder outside of Egypt. So someone said, well, because God wanted us to have it in our home, it would be more comfortable. Okay, that sounds good. 
And also, by the way, God made it that this happened in springtime, so that the weather would be the best weather for when we entered into the desert. All, all good. But God could have orchestrated all of these things, right? Why have the first celebration of leaving Egypt while we're still in Egypt? Or, let me put it a different way. You're back 3 a.m. in downtown Detroit. (laughs) I'm in the middle of the darkness right now. How are you telling me to see God and to, to, to enjoy and to create this love affair, and to invest of myself, and to figure out what to do with my IKEA bookshelf, which looks perfectly fine, but I've got an extra few screws over here. So what Hashem is telling us is something very, very awesome. That we can celebrate our freedom even in a place which from the outside looks like servitude. If we're free inside, then we're free everywhere. And the best example that I can give of this is I saw the little thing, uh, I didn't read the whole book, but one of the heroes of the Jewish people today is Natan Sharansky. And, And we know that and now he's a, a you know in the you know he's one of the people who's running the, the the nation of Israel, the state of Israel, and maybe he'll be prime minister one day. Who knows? But he started off as a ref, a, a refusenik in in the Soviet Union in Russia at a time during the 1970s where if you were applying to leave the Soviet Union to go to Israel, you were essentially putting a death sentence on yourself and your family, at least economically. You, you would lose your job, you would lose whatever privileges that you had. If you insisted, you would be thrown into jail. And if you still insisted, you would be thrown into solitary confinement. Natan Sharansky was in solitary confinement in the Soviet Union for the crime of wanting to go to the land of Israel. And he writes that while he was sitting in solitary confinement, In the Soviet Union, he was laughing at the Russian government, saying, you think that I'm in prison? I know there's a God, I'm free. So this is all of us. This is all of us. You say, I'm in a body, and my body is my prison, and my body is driving me to do this, and my body is driving me to do that. Or I'm in this world, I can't see God. God is so concealed, I can't see him. How? But all of us are free. All of us are free. You know, one of my favorite examples, one of the best things I ever learned, I guess, was in, 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 in math class in 10th grade, right, at Bronx Science in, 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 in geometry, I learned that the definition of a line was an infinite number of points that are sort of compressed together. So to me, that was like a revelation when I started thinking about this years later. Because I thought a line was a solid entity. 
And now I'm being told that a line is not a solid entity. A, so, a, a line is a series of discrete individual points, but they're so close together, they look like a solid entity, but they're not a solid entity. They're discrete individual points next to each other. Why is that so important? So the example that I always like to think of is, imagine I'm on a diet and I decide, ah, I'm so hungry and there's that cake in the refrigerator, whatever it is. Uh, I'm walking toward the refrigerator. And then I say to myself, "Um, you know, really I shouldn't do it. It's not good for me. I'm trying to diet. And then I say, but I'm already walking toward the refrigerator. The, The deal is already done. It's already over. In other words, it's a solid line. I'm already locked in. Okay, so then I go and I eat the cake, right? But if I know that a line is a series of individual points where one point is not connected to the next point, each point is individual and discrete, I can be walking toward the refrigerator and go, I'm not locked in. At any moment, I can turn, because I'm free. At any moment, I can turn and I can go in any direction, because I'm free. I'll give you another example of this, something else that came to me years back. And it's going to be in next week's Parsha. Another kind of mysterious moment in the, in the, in the Torah where we've left Egypt and we're kind of marching, marching in the opposite direction of Egypt. And all of a sudden, God says, turn around and start back for Egypt. This is, wow, like, go back to Egypt? We, we just left Egypt after all of this. And it, the whole thing was a plan to trick Pyro to make him think that we were lost in the desert so that he'd send all of his chariots and God is now setting up this epic event of the Red Sea where the sea is going to split and it's going to close in on the whole Egyptian army with all their chariots. And the event that's going to trigger that is Paro thinking that we're lost in the desert. So that's the, that's the simple explanation. But what I want to say is on, a, on another level is that God took us out of Egypt, and then he sent us back toward Egypt. And, and then we didn't go back into Egypt. And I want to say that at that moment, every person got strength for all time, that if you ever start to feel the desire to go back to your old self, to, to, back to your old Egypts, they were going back, and then they turned around and they went in the opposite direction. They were giving us strength for all time not to go back. So so let's just wrap it up. You see this idea that, that God has a purpose for everything in his creation and that even our negative side has a role in the service of God. And God wants us to serve him 
with both of our hearts, with all of our energy, and to find a way to channel all of our desires in terms of heavenly service. And Pyro says, no, no, don't do that. And now I'm going to tell you something else. You ready for this? So Rabbi Freeman made this point after, after I, I, I mentioned this earlier part to him. A fantastic point. He says, look at what Moshe says. Moshe says, no, we're even leaving with our cattle. And now, listen to this next part. And you're going to give us your cattle <laughs> to serve God with. Now we're talking about the flipping over of the entire world. Do you understand? This is the flipping over of the entire world that's taking place. See, because remember, we're all God's children. It's not just the Jewish people. We have a special role in God's plan. But all of us, all the nations, every single person in the world, we're all God's children. And we all have a role in terms of transforming this world. We all have a role in transforming this world. And so Moshe says to Paro, you're even going to give us your cattle to serve God with. And then Moshe says, we have to bring it because we don't know. And I think this is such a crucial phrase. Moshe says, we don't know what God is going to want us to serve him with. We don't know. We don't know. See, I think it's the Beis HaLevi says that the reason why we brought the golden calf, the, the chief crime of the golden calf, because everyone asks the same question. What, God doesn't like gold statues? Aren't there two golden angels on top of the Aaron Kodesh? In the Holy of Holies? <laughs> what do you mean God doesn't like golden statues? So what's, so what's so terrible about the golden calf? Because God told us to make those, and he didn't tell us to make the golden calf. Very simple. Very, very, very simple. So we served God with the golden calf according to our understanding, not, a, not according to God's will for us. So Moshe Rabbeinu says we have to bring everything because we don't know what God wants us to serve him with. You see, this idea of not knowing, this is the fixing of the golden calf, this is the fixing from the Eitzadas. Remember, what's the whole idea of, of drinking on Purim? Adilo yada, to go beyond knowing, to go beyond this level of the tree of knowledge. Right? Where you're just sort of like, you're open and you're going. You're not exactly sure where. But, you know, I once wrote a song a long time ago. Forgive my voice. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. <laughs> <laughs> Remember when Hashem said to Avraham Avinu, 
He didn't tell him go to Israel. He didn't tell him to, to go to Canaan. Look at the words. He says, go to the place that I will show you. See, this is a much greater avoda, a much greater test. You know where you're going? No, it's okay. I know where you're going. <laughs> That's enough. God, you know where I'm going, and you made me, and you made the whole world, and you give me every single breath, and I can't move one toe without you. You know where I'm going, and you want me to go in that direction? I'm going with, with my whole self, with my orange and my peel, with all my zest. <laughs> <laughs> now what happens when we leave Egypt? What happens when we leave Egypt? We take the gold and the silver, right? Now again, always, always have to go back to the simple level. Well, we had been slaves there for, you know, you can. They're different. They're different calculations. Two hundred and ten years of hard labor—that's the minimum number. So there were some serious back wages, right? <laughs> some serious back wages that we were owed. Okay, that's on the simplest level. On a more Kabbalistic level, these were the falling sparks from the Shfiris HaKalim, right? The sparks that had fallen from the beginning of creation. That's the silver and gold that's being referred to that we took out. And then what happens then? We're taking out our cattle, which means total service. Paro's giving us cattle. That means service of the entire world. We're taking out the gold and silver, and what do we make with that gold and silver? We're making the kalim of the mishkan, right? That's the holy tabernacle. That's the holy, the, the prototype of the holy temple. And what's that? That's the connection between heaven and earth. That's the portal between heaven and earth. That's the fixing and the sealing, the organic unity of heaven and earth. That's the whole, that's the fruit in the shell. That's, that's everything together. All of a sudden, everything comes together. You, you think it's for nothing that the Zohar says that the future redemption is going to be based on this redemption? From Egypt? Because you see in this model the totality of everything, right? But again, just to conclude on this practical note, if you want to if you want to do it if you want to do it you can't just be running away from something you have to be running towards something that's the key line of this whole thing okay you can't just be running away from something you have to be running towards something and if you're doing that you're going to be able to do it with all of your hearts <laughs>